0: Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of EcoFlix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the EcoFlix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. My guest needs little by way of introduction. Well known for his work behind as well as in front of the camera, Niall McCann is a TV presenter, explorer, a fearless adventurer, biologist, and a great friend and part of the EcoFlix family. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm very much looking forward to introducing everyone to Dr. Niall McCann, who is a PhD conservation biologist like no other. Greetings, welcome Niall, great to see you.
1: Thanks for having me, David, nice to see you too.
0: Yes, and if I may, I'd like to share a bit more background for our audience, limiting myself just to the bare but amazing essentials. Uh, Beyond your PhD and really impressive published research, Nile's a National Geographic Explorer with extensive experience fighting poaching and the illegal wildlife trade. His work as a director and trustee of the National Park Rescue is itself an amazing story and we'll talk some about that. Nile's also an experienced television presenter, having worked with Sir David Attenborough and as the star and presenter of several of his own series. But back to basics, He's a trustee of the Royal Geographical Society, a trustee of the Wallacea Trust, an ambassador for the British Inspiration Trust and Smash Life, a board member and trustee of the Ecoflix Foundation, and an active member of the Brecon Mountain Rescue Team. I hope I pronounced that
1: right. Uh, Close enough. Brecon. Yeah, I'm actually wearing their outfit today because I've got training to go to this evening.
0: Right. And people might ask why a mountain rescue team. Well... That's because Nile was rescued in 2016 after breaking his back in a speed flying accident. And after learning how to walk again, he joined the group that rescued him. And this is the same guy who rode across the Atlantic. Yes, you heard me right. He rode across the Atlantic, skied across Greenland, cycled over the Himalayas, all the while rock climbing and mountaineering across the globe, Hi, my friend. Truly an honor you could join us as a podcast. But you're a very smart guy. You have to explain to us what the heck
1: were you doing speed flying? Well, yes, it's massively exhilarating. <laughs> and uh, although I, yeah, I'm smart enough to know risk when I see it. I also inherited a disdain for risk, I suppose, and was never really born with a survival instinct that most people are born lucky enough to have. And I've, from a young age, sought out adventure at the sharp end, I suppose, as a way of looking at it, like rock climbing and mountaineering and those types of things. And it was a natural transition and progression to get into speed flying. And boy, was it great fun. <laughs> but wasn't very good at it and, until
0: it uh, wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, great fun until the moment when I slammed into a hillside at 50 miles an hour and um, exploded one of my vertebrae and broke four others. So, no, that wasn't so much fun. Oh,
0: wow. You know, I've always seen people in those suits and they're zipping along and inches away from a rock wall. And yes, it looks very exhilarating, but I don't have anywhere near the confidence that I could wear anything and jump off. The top of a mountain and think I'm going to live.
1: I think my issue was I did have the confidence, but not the competence to go along with it. And that was was the issue.
0: (laughs) Yeah, reality strikes again. So let's talk about something not that sedate, but uh, slightly less exciting. Can you explain a little bit about National Park Rescue? What's the important work you guys do and how do you fit in?
1: Well, National Park Rescue was founded by me and some friends on the back of a really successful conservation intervention which has happened in in Malawi to take a, a dying national park and turn it around again and in we decided backyard,
0: right you're in wales malawi's just <laughs> yeah country.
1: well british national park system is is a difficult place to start you i'm sure you've visited british national parks they're essentially elaborate sheep farms and one of the things that's actually protected inside most of the national parks is the right for people to, to graze their livestock and to go about their lives. So you, you would drive through a national park in the UK and not know that you've left the neighbouring village. Whereas national parks in other countries are these amazing areas of wilderness and and, and yeah, pristine biodiversity and in need of protection because there's so much in there. Britain is a different case entirely. And I I have future ambitions to turn my metaphorical guns on the british national park system and try and shake it and turn it into something which actually protects nature as opposed to simply protecting people's elaborate sheep farms but in the meantime i've been focusing my attention abroad and national park rescue was established in order to identify national parks that cannot cope with the poaching crisis and to try and rescue them for want of a better word so parks that are suffering massive loss this of
0: rescuing the parks, let's be clear. When you say yeah. rescuing them, you're not talking about the animals being poached. No, rescuing the entire park.
1: Yeah, because we really came to understand that you can focus on one species and just try and stop one, one species being poached, or you can take a more landscape view and look at an entire area, and protect everything that's inside there, including the, all of the ecosystem services that that, that, that area protects provides for the communities that go around it. So instead of just focusing on elephants, which, which we use as our, our indicator metric for which parks we were interested in, we focused on the landscapes. And that means providing jobs, it means providing general security, it means providing trade, as well as protecting elephants. You put all those things together and you have an effective conservation project.
0: And so you're literally looking at entire national parks that are at risk coming in, and turning that around and saving the parks.
1: Yeah, quite. And ha- having just got back from Zimbabwe, where we've been working in a park for four and a half years, the the, the turnaround is just astonishing. W- within a year of us having been there, we'd increased the arrest rate by about 300% in comparison to the previous four years of hardened poachers, really, really tough, tough criminals. Within a year of having really focused on Snare removal, we saw the snare removal rate increase by 400%. Within two years of having been there, the lion population had doubled and elephant poaching had gone down by 90%. And having just got back, I've had a look at the latest tourist statistics and there are 50 times more tourists visiting the park every month than there were five years ago, which is just astonishing to me, (laughs) It's It's wonderful.
0: Really fantastic and Zimbabwe needed the help for sure it's um, yeah
1: it, good the entire the tourism industry in zimbabwe is operating about a, th- a third of where it was in 2006 but if we're now looking at like orders of magnitude more tourists in chisirira the park where we are than were there five years ago that that park is now a, a, an outlier success story and long may that continue for me it's that's the real that, that that's the proof of what we've done is is now working we've got The security situation stabilized, we provided local jobs, we got the local economy thriving, wildlife started to come back and now people are coming back as well. And that's gonna take it on to the future.
0: Brilliant, just brilliant. So my background is a testament to your rowing across the ocean, but it isn't going to be the topic of primary importance today. I would really like to get into something that's sort of at the heart of EcoFlix. And since you're also at the heart of EcoFlix, it's perfect for us to have this conversation. Obviously, our goal is to inspire and educate people and to make a difference. And I want to dig into something today that really many people find so depressing. And I'd like to try to find some inspiration in all of that. And that has to do with the subject of climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a continuously challenging, sort of irksome reality that the planet will be fine if we become extinct. I don't think too many people separate those two, but I think it's quite well established in science that when we're gone, the planet will probably take a deep sigh of relief and say, thank goodness. But for people, the question is, is there any real hope for mankind? Doctor, what say
1: you? Oh, there's always hope. (laughs) (laughs) but we don't just want to cling on to hope. You actually want to base that hope on some kind of reality as well. Uh, And it's, it's fruitless, just attaching yourselves to some some kind of hopeful utopian future. But really what we're, we're at a a real inflection points in that we as a species have a choice. Do we carry on doing what we were doing in the 20th century, which was an extractive based uh, existence, extractive based economy, or do we, change that and go into not just a sustainable economy, but a regenerative economy, one that actually gives back to the planet as opposed to just maintaining things where they are. And all signs are that the world is slowly coming to the realization that this is not just the right thing to do, but it's also the financially prudent thing to do as well. It makes financial sense as well as making moral sense for us to change our relationship with the planet.
0: Yeah, no question, and I take some solace out of the fact that we've put ourselves into this predicament in the last 50 years. When when I was a child, there was a beautiful wild existence in almost any place you wanted to go that had been maybe touched and, and harmed a little, but nothing close to being in danger. Mm. So it stands to reason we should be able to dig ourselves out. If we've done it in such a short time, what, what is the relationship between the, the problem and the cure?
1: Good point and good question. So yes, we can get ourselves out, but we also have to realize that we can't get ourselves out by doing the same things that got us into this problem in the first place. So we need to change the way we do things. Now, I would look at humanity as absolutely the problem but also the solution it's we have the solutions at our fingertips we have the technological solutions we have the intellectual solutions we just need the desire and there's an overwhelming desire amongst most members of the public in in at least those places where you're not struggling to feed yourself on a day-to-day basis to try and live in harmony with the planet in places where people are just struggling to live they don't have the flexibility to think about conservation or environmentalism because they're worried about where they find their food So what I see as absolutely beholden upon those of us that are living in in wealthier nations is to provide the globe with the security to think long-term. We need to have a long-term mentality to the planet as opposed to just thinking where our next meme is coming from.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with the realization of the people that they actually are the cause of something. I mean, I think there is a good deal of public awareness developing, not nearly enough, but much more than there was, say, five years ago, that climate change and all the things that we're seeing now are not an accident. They are related, and we're right at the root of them. But Robin Henry Tennyson said something on his podcast, which uh, I thought was really significant. He was talking about another scientist who felt that we actually needed a climate-related disaster that was more severe. Severe mm. enough to scare people into believing and taking action. What do you think about that?
1: It's an interesting thought, but I would ask him, what's more severe than a third of Pakistan being underwater this, this summer? A third. And Nigeria now we're looking at not quite a third, but not far off. is underwater. A third of a country underwater is insane. What what I'm, I'm sure the scientist that, that Robin was referring to was thinking of is it needs to happen close to home. And people's issue is thinking of this thing as being slightly distant. But more and more people are now being caught up in annual extreme weather events or fires or storms, that that climate change is no longer something distant that happens in far off places. It's now something that happens to all of us. And all of us can have an impact on it. I think to begin with, people thought that that just meant turning off the lights or only boiling however much water you need as opposed to boiling a full kettle every time and and maybe driving a hybrid car or an electric car and that stuff's all important but really the seismic shifts happen in other ways they happen in how you vote principally how you use your labor as a member of the workplace and how you consume what you buy These things make an enormous difference when affected across a large number of people. If everyone in your neighborhood votes for politicians that put the environment first, then the environment will be put first. Well,
0: yes, and that's that's something I wanna talk more about because yes, there are more and more believers as opposed to the skeptics, but there are still so many skeptics. And I don't think there's a recognition that if only a significant portion of the population made small but meaningful changes in their life, it would make a massive difference. I mean, we have, as you know, on the site, a a little trailer we developed, people were saying, of all races, sexes, colors, what, what difference would it make? If I did something? What difference Mm -hmm. can I make? And obviously, the bottom point is, you know, if 8 billion people are saying that at the same time, there's a lot of difference that you can make just by being a little bit attentive to things that people haven't been paying attention to now. And I think your comments and mine are leading to this perception that people act in their own interest. And that's really what it boils down to. And until people realize it's in their interest, they won't change. And yeah. that's where money becomes important. Can you talk a little bit about how money fits into something that really technically has nothing to do with money?
1: Well, as an example, in the UK, we're going through an energy crisis, um, partially as a result of the war in Ukraine, partially as a result of our government um, not knowing how to run a country. And all of us are faced with massively inflated energy bills coming this 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 winter, as we're about to go into winter. What most people don't necessarily realize is that electricity from solar is nine times cheaper than electricity from gas and so leaving that gas in the ground not only are we reducing the impact of climate change but we're saving ourselves enormous amounts of money at the moment already germany is generating almost 50 percent of its energy from renewables britain's at about 40%. The US is recalcitrant uh, and a laggard in, in, in so many things, and, and renewables included, it's kind of 12% in the, in the US. But if we shift that balance, and you start reducing our reliance on petrochemicals, we save ourselves a lot of money. I've seen the stats that the switch, the transition to renewables in Texas would create an extra 1.1 million jobs than, than, than currently exist. So there are more jobs in the green economy. The green economy is growing faster, it's grown about twice as fast as the regular economy in Europe in the past past decade, and it saves us cash in other other ways. That's all short-term stuff, so the the jobs are there, the the money savings are there. But also long-term, we have to think about the enormous costs of climate change. Every time a Hurricane Katrina hits, think of the cost of that. I remember hearing a, a, a brilliant statistic about mangroves. People don't really think about mangroves very often mangroves provide $65 billion a year in flood mitigation services, let alone the fisheries that they provide, the carbon sequestration, the pollination, everything else that mangroves support. Just flooding alone saves the world $65 billion and Belize, 10% of its GDP is dependent upon the being mangroves. If we chop down those mangroves and turn that into a factory or turn it into housing or something, you wipe 10% of that country's GDP overnight.
0: Well, and this goes back to nature makes no mistakes. Everything that is involved in the evolution of the planet, as we see it, is there for a reason. It served a very important purpose in mangroves. You know, most people would look at a mangrove and the first word that comes along is swamp, mangrove swamp. And of course they don't realize that the mangroves are just offshore very, very heavily rooted, and they serve this incredible function that you're talking about of breaking waves and stopping storm activity. But it's like so many things in the natural world that were evolved for a reason. They aren't just randomly planted there, or they wouldn't have lasted. And that's that's why we're so I think, negligent for allowing species after species after species to go extinct. And I'm just talking about daily. <laughs> mm. There's just constant loss of biodiversity and we don't even know the cost of that. There's so many things we don't understand. You know, we're we're just now even becoming slightly familiar with the, the chemical properties of plants. Mm. So all this time, they've been there serving a very important function. And we consider ourselves brilliant because we invent some drug that's made out of a plant. We didn't invent it. (laughs) The plant was always there. So, but back to the concept of money, because Mm -hmm. I find it very amusing, but also valuable to know that this is what people value. People Mm -hmm. see money as the most important thing. I personally think that if everybody was relatively equally sustainable, they all had food, they all had water, they all could live their life, nature would be clearly recognized as the most valuable thing. It provides all those things. But people don't see it that way. They see it in money, and they don't mind it. Many people have no money, and a lot of people have most of the money. And it is troublesome that we need to find, as you are saying, more jobs, Uh, for people who need jobs, which just, oh, by the way, will help happen to help the world. So how do we educate the people uh, that the solution is in exploring these new vital economies that help everybody in so many different ways?
1: Genuinely, I think it's happening. I think the, the, the younger generation are well aware that they need the planet to survive, They understand that it's nature that creates the oxygen that we breathe. It cleans the water that we drink. It gives us our food. It regulates our climates. It has a regulatory effect on the emergence of new infectious diseases. I think the younger generation understands that. And they want jobs in a planet that's sustainable and that's thriving. They don't want jobs in a planet that's dying. They know that there's no planet B. The issue is at government level. When people, people at government are still making the types of decisions that put the planet in last place for this imaginary idea of uh, of short-term growth, and, and that's, that's, I think, a lot of that's down to vested interests, so lobbying groups, and we we don't yet have enough lobbying power within the parts of the of the human population that want to make the world a better place. All, all, all the lobbying power is is with your your maleficent um, sectors, but we've we've just seen an example. A really positive example in the UK so that the new government have threatened to roll back on a lot of environmental protections, in multiple spheres, in farming and in housing development, and various other things in a way that has really pissed off your nature trusts. So, we've got in the UK, we've got the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, we've got the National Trust, and we've got the various wildlife trusts totaling around. 10 or 11 million members paid members and normally these guys are quiet and nice but they've come out swinging at the government and and each of them are saying we will mobilize our millions of members if you continue to jeopardize nature you can't do it anymore and i think that's fantastic what we're missing is effective lobbying by by groups that are trying to protect the planet and we're now at the point where it's almost a rearguard action, but it's just beginning to happen. I, I, I have a lot of hope for the next generation. I, it's down to people like you and me to make sure that there's something for them to, 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 to be able to protect in the next few years.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I love everything you just said and I agree with it completely. And yet it strikes me as a lesser lift, an easier job to provide product that people want that oh by the way happens to be good for the planet so take electric cars i mean there there are drawbacks there's some problems associated with electric cars and batteries and disposal and all those things but in general electric cars offer great opportunity for the planet and somehow and i hate to you know glorify what elon musk has done even though it's incredible he He's sort of evolving himself, and uh, I wonder where he's going to end up. But yeah. in the meantime, he had an opportunity to do something, and like many others before him, he was given the choice to sell out. He could have sold the idea of electric car company, made a lot of money just giving it up. And he said, no, nope, no, nope, the world needs this, and I'm going to do it. And doggone it, he did it. And I think he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. Every automaker in the world now has shifted. Why? Not because they wanted to make electric cars. They could have done that a hundred years ago. They mm-hmm. want to make electric cars because they realize they can make money at it. And that seems to me, I mean, plastics. Plastics. We we've been making horrible plastics for generations that are killing sea life, and among other things, and sitting elsewhere and just being horrible, and now they're developing biodegradable plastic, and soon, most of the major companies, I assume, will be selling their products in biodegradable plastic, not because they wanted to, but because they see that if they don't, they're going to be like you're saying, the public's going to rise up, and the planet demands that we no longer shove pieces of plastic down turtles'
1: throats, among yeah, I think it's fascinating. We have we have a mix of some really forward thinking companies and governments that are making enormous strides in got Patagonia uh, s- s- giving the entire company billions of dollars worth of that company, giving it to a trust that gives back to nature. That's that's phenomenal. They set up one percent for the planet. We've got the B Corp movement that's happening as well, the business for people and for planet. That's all happening. Then we've got this groundswell of uh, of consumer interest, people that don't want to invest in, in pensions or in bank accounts that are propping up the fossil fuel industry or the pornography industry or or, or you name it. They're, they're wanting to invest in, in green technologies, in sustainability. And we've got a few governments. We're looking at New Zealand granting personhoods to rivers. We've got Costa Rica that have been leading the way in payments for ecosystem services, paying people to plant more trees. We've got Gabon now receiving enormous amounts of money for, for not deforesting itself. We've got Bhutan with the gross national happiness index, far better than gross domestic produce. Who cares about the size of an economy if everyone's unhappy? So what we're, what we're seeing is these little things happening in business and in government and in, and in consumer society and in society, um, it's got to reach that tipping point i remember reading about new ideas need a, a certain critical mass of people to get behind them before it becomes unstoppable and that critical mass is actually quite low it's only just over 10 percent. once a, once a new idea has reached that level of, of of popularity it's essentially unstoppable and the new idea we're talking about is living in harmony with the planet like that's that, that's not that's not a great a, a, a crazy thing but our mentality post the second world war was all about consumption like we, we, we've survived this terrible thing and that's about consumption and economic growth and now we're at the point where actually no we, we need to rein that in a little bit we can still live fantastic lives but in a way that's in harmony with the planet uh, what, what we we also have the issue with of course is there are those malignant forces that are holding things back you talked about the climate deniers and I find this interesting. Uh, you live in the US, which is a, a different kettle of fish to Northern yeah, it's slow. <laughs> And it's in the UK. We still have a few people that deny the climate, but it's probably similar numbers of people that deny evolution or deny the shape of the planet. And those people I consign to the loony bit. They are not worth engaging with because they're not relevant. But in the US, you've got enormous numbers of people that still deny climate deny evolution, and probably deny the shape of the world world as well. And we need that tipping point. (laughs) There's still, there's too many people that are are believing that for the governments and and businesses in the U.S. to start making a big difference. We need that transition so that the U.S. slowly catches up with Western Europe when it it comes to our intellectual understanding of facts. Um, But but, but you're getting there slowly.
0: Well, very slowly. I think that um, maybe the scientist who was saying we need a more severe problem was thinking about the U.S. because we've seen some pretty severe storms Ian who came through just caused tens of billions of dollars of damage and you don't hear people here talking about climate change they talk about it was a bad storm oh geez another bad storm and well we sure have had a lot of them lately and and they don't see a connection and if they do if it's in their interest certainly they deny it um I thought it was fascinating, there was a show on 60 Minutes uh, this week talking about a civilization in the heart of Florida, mm. Babcock Ranch, that was built to be hurricane-free. All right. And they had a massive 400-acre solar field. The entire city was solar-powered with buried lines. And the st- structures were built to withstand high winds. They were down for about an hour or two during the storm, never lost power. Mm. There were a couple of tiles that flew off one or two roofs. No solar panels were blown. Mm. Everything was intact. They had to clean up a little bit of debris that blew down. Some trees didn't make it. And other than that, they were back as if nothing happened hours after the storm passed. Now, this proves to me at least, that we can do this. And they they built this community with what I would call 50-50 vision. I mean, it's not 2020. You couldn't see the storms coming. Just check your calendar. I mean, everybody knows, and yet they weren't doing anything. And this one community, I mean, literally one community did this amazing work to prepare and they didn't have a problem. Now, they didn't have as much of an issue with oceans rising, uh, but they built the community with that in mind. They had a lot of things that they took into account, and I just think they deserve immense credit. And more importantly, they we need to talk about that. People need to hear about that and understand, hey, the developers made a lot of money.
1: Yeah. Talk about economic growth, but building these climate resilience places, that's economic growth. All the jobs involved, all of the construction involved, that's massive growth in a way that's building places that, that can live in the changing climate.
0: Right, and that's why I think the focus has to be because I don't think we're going to change people from being very centered on things like money and no. and greed. And <clears throat> that's okay as long as you're focusing it in the right way. And so these companies, for example, they're making biodegradable plastics. I think that they want that recognition for being green or greener, and people should reward them. We should go out and make sure we talk about and buy those products. Um, But there's a whole other side and dimension to this that we haven't touched on yet, which, you know, maybe we can kick off this part of the conversation by you explaining sort of how our air and nature are part of what we are, how even biodiversity contributes to our environment. I don't think very many people understand that. And then I want to talk some specifics, but you can give sort of the overview of where the air comes from and how it is that the hydrological cycle works, those kind of sort of basic things for a biologist. But they're
1: way over the head for most of us. I'm sure most people are loosely aware that oxygen comes from trees and plants and from phytoplankton. But maybe maybe they're not. <laughs> I don't <laughs> maybe, think maybe so. I don't yeah, think pretty so. Pretty I, yeah, I spoke a tree or a plant takes sunlight and take takes take some water and it, it turns it into glucose and, and, and oxygen and, and and out you go and it, it emits oxygen as a waste product which then we need to survive. So we, we are surviving on the waste products of plants. And takes in- Takes power. in the carbon dioxide, which we're breathing out ourselves. So our own waste products is, is, use, is used by, uh, by, by trees to generate their own food, uh, which, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But phytoplankton as well, do an enormous amount of it, both the carbon sequestration and the oxygen production. Mm-hmm. They talk about the Amazon being, being the lungs of the world, and that's absolutely true. They just operate in the opposite way to the way our lungs do. They, they suck in carbon dioxide and they, and they breathe out oxygen. One thing I don't think many people are aware of is that about a third of global agriculture requires pollination. Pollination by, by insects. Those insects need somewhere to live. Where do they live? They live in the hedgerows. They live in the trees. They live in the grassy verges. And they then pollinate our crops. A third. 33 percent of global agriculture still requires nature without nature, bees (laughs) bees and ants and all these other things that's what uh, without them our third of our food disappears overnight just thinking about the the water as well in in terms of the, the, the water cycle one thing nature does amazingly well is it controls water so we get less flooding Trees on a hillside means that they're soaking up an enormous amount of rain. If that rain's got nowhere to go, it goes straight down the hill and into the into the village at the base. I, I've spent quite a bit of time in in Texas. Texas has got oh, an enormous <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's a fascinating place to spend some time sociologically. Um, <laughs> let's let, let's put it that way. They've they've basically turned, take Houston as an example. Houston was was on five large bayous, five big swamps, and they've turned it into a giant pavement load of car parks you know, buildings loads of roads and now surprisingly houston has horrendous flooding every single year because you've taken a sponge nature is a sponge for water and you've turned it into a a, a a pavement a parking lot they took paradise and they and they put up a parking lot as the old song song goes and that's, talk that's a
0: little bit about how the water the sponge soaks in plays a part in the hydrologic cycle because once they put those parking lots in they lost that back and forth relationship.
1: Well, the big thing that we need to survive in these places is, is water for our crops, water for our houses and all of that type of stuff. And that water gets retained by sponges and by, by, by rivers and by aquifers. We look at the enormous amount of water being taken out of the, the Colorado River. Is it even making it all the way to the sea these days? I'm not, not sure it is. Right? We've got so many massive rivers that are, that are no longer able to provide the, the hydrological uh, support that they used to give downstream communities because it's being lost upstream. Up there's, there's so much that we're doing that is damaging ourselves. And again, people think about, you're thinking about money. Like, we need we need these services for our own survival. We need to have water from nature. We need to have air from nature. We need to have pollination services from nature. If we have flooding, your insurance bills go up. This is, these are immediate costs that are attributed to the degradation of nature. And I think people, because it, it, it happens uh, at slightly removed, people don't see it immediately. But your insurance next year is related to the fire that happened last year, because there's no water in those trees, because we've taken it all out and, and put it into our farms, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's explicitly related and it's costing us cash by not putting nature first.
0: Yes, and I think that this concept of water evaporating from the earth and going up, people think it's gone, and they don't understand that when it evaporates, clouds are seeded and they carry the water, then they rain, and it doesn't necessarily rain in the same place where it evaporated, and there's a balance that water is not lost, and it's a system, but when we shut down distinct portions of that system, that that portion of the system is broken and this is i just think not well understood by the average person and not talked about enough by the educated people who really could help us so of course in, a,
1: in you know, a warmer planet in a warmer planet more water is evaporating so the seas are evaporating more which means there's more moisture in the atmosphere which means there's much more coming down as rain this is one of the issues where you've got a positive feedback cycle from from climate change more more storms are being created by us heating the planet up and that's that's catastrophic i often will come out in the morning and on my car outside will be a little thin film of dust Uh, that's sand from the sahara which has been picked up in africa three thousand miles away transported in the clouds and deposited on me and that's that's for me is a little reminder that i'm actually connected to the sahara so what happens there affects me here i think it's a nice little understanding
0: Right. And the warming component of it, um, if you can go into a little bit about how the ozone layer and what we're doing down here is adding warmth, which heats up the water, makes storms worse, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I think ozone is one of the best examples of when humanity comes together and can make a really positive impact. Was it the, the Montreal Protocol, Montreal Declaration, where scientists had discovered that through the emissions of CFCs, gases that are produced by refrigeration units and that type of stuff, we've been burning this massive hole in the ozone layer. The ozone layer protects the planet from some of the more harmful uh, of the sun's rays. And that was creating an enormous warming effect because all of these these highly radioactive rays were, were coming through, heating the planet, and it was only getting worse. And the planet came together, the governments came together, and realised that this was a cat a catastrophe, and they it, it put it put regulations over the creation of CFC gases, and the ozone layer is now reforming, which is amazing. This giant hole over Antarctica and there's various other holes around the world are slowly reforming, it's taking it's taking decades to do so, but it's working, and that for me was a wonderful example of discovering a problem and finding a solution and no one in the refrigeration unit industry has lost a job as a result of this. You find an alternative technology. People still have fridges. We just have fridges that are better for the planet. And so many of these other crises that we're gonna be facing are gonna be overcome in the same way. We just need people to come together and find those solutions.
0: Right, and another one of those involves trees themselves. People have been cutting down trees Everywhere They chop them down and turn them into boards to build their houses. Then they burn them in the fireplace. Then they sell them remotely. And we are clear cutting massive, unbelievable amounts. And now we're finding ourselves with not enough trees. And I don't think people really understand the role of trees in this cycle, how they're taking out the carbon and emitting oxygen on top of all the other things they do. I mean, they shade the ground, they do many good things. Um, You can talk a little more about that because this is something that we can do something about.
1: Well, I I think one of the issues that climate change has in general is communication because it's quite complicated to talk about trees soaking soaking up carbon and emitting oxygen. And it kind of passes most people by. Whereas something about trees that I think is easily digestible for everyone is the fact that they reduce the temperature around them so if you've got a city full of trees it's five degrees cooler than a city without trees there's been some fascinating studies in in, in areas where people are doing manual labor and it, it, people doing manual labor surrounded by trees work more hours than people doing manual labor where there's not trees so if you want economic growth have more trees because people can work harder because they're not knackered they're not constant they're not living in horrendous temperatures and they're not absolutely shattered. Um, then, of course, we have the fact that trees are producing enormous amounts of oxygen that we need to survive. They're providing homes for the bees that we need to pollinate our foods. They're creating the water that we need for rain. They're reducing the amount of runoff through, through flooding. Trees have an enormous impact. But what you've touched on is the fact that they they have this value. We know all of these things that, 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 that they're valuable for oxygen and shade and flooding and water production and all this type of stuff, carbon sequestration. But they don't yet have a price until they're turned into timber. And what's happening now is that people are putting a price on trees staying standing, paying people to keep a tree in place because we know how much value that tree will create for the communities that surround it. And that's, I think, a real game changer And this has started with countries like Costa Rica paying farmers to to plant trees again, knowing that a a healthy human society needs a healthy environment. And then it's shifted into this this carbon credit world where companies or governments or individuals can offset their own carbon footprint by planting trees elsewhere. And it's gonna transition further. The next transition is accounting for the value of trees and other plants and animals in every single government's ledgers. Understanding the value of a forest in terms of its flood mitigation, its oxygen production, its water cleaning, its temperature regulation, all of these things. Understanding that and incorporating that into your ledger. Because at the moment, it's seen as an externality. So it doesn't really get counted. It's just something that's external to the central economy. And we need to bring it into our economy because over 50% of our economy is dependent on nature so it must be accounted for
0: you know it's interesting because there's so many ways to look at trees as one example and one of them that really i find really sort of heartwarming is that much like human centric behavior where we think animals aren't smart because they don't speak our language Mm. Uh, or whatever, I mean, we could go down that road a long distance, including slavery, but let's, sticking with trees for the moment, trees are remarkable in other ways that we don't recognize so easily, and when you start to learn about the mycorrhizal network, which is a mystery to most people, and it was to me until I learned about it, and I think that's the importance of these kind of conversations, once people know better, they can do better, the mycorrhizal network, well, you explain it. You're in a better position than I. Uh, you're the scientist.
1: Trees are talking to each other. And they're talking to each other via connections made by tiny little fungi that live on their roots. And that's spread out across the surface of the earth. So a tree on one side of a street will know what's happening to a tree on the other side of the street. It'll know if it's stressed. It'll know if it's got enough food or not enough food. It'll know if it's got an infection. It'll know if there's some birds nesting in it. It'll know what's happening to the weather on the other side of the street and what to prepare for itself. They know this because they're talking to each other through these mycorrhizal networks, these incredible intricate networks of fungi existing on the roots.
0: And they actually share, when they have babies, when the trees' babies grow around it, they fall and the seeds are planted They literally share nutrients to protect their babies with shade and they send the sap and sugars and other things down. I mean, I love anthropomorphizing trees because Mm. they get a bad rap and they need all the help we can get. Yes, they're not like people, but at the same time, there's so many relatable components that we really need to talk about and appreciate because- You know, just think about clear cutting a forest. Can you imagine the fear that must be going through the other trees that can't run? They're rooted quite literally to the ground and they know that the ax or the saw is coming for them and there's nothing they can do. I mean, I, I find it important that people recognize that trees are part of a universal creative intelligence um, we all have our own form of communication and feelings. and um, I think if if humans were less impressed with themselves and more willing to see the value of other living things, we have less of the problems. we fewer of the problems than we have. and And we can jump from trees, which are a subject of carbon credits, to other things. you You mentioned phytoplankton. Talk a little bit about how whales, i mean, <laughs> Seems so random to most people, how whales and phytoplankton help us breathe.
1: Whales, the great whales, so your blue whales, sperm whales, humpback whales, Mickey whales, those types of things, eat an enormous amount of food. And as a result of eating an enormous amount of food, they poop a lot. And that poop provides the substrate, for phytoplankton to grow. It provides all of the food for phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are surviving off uh, the waste products of the great whales. And phytoplankton perform an enormous amount of the carbon sequestration that happens on Earth. I think it's something in the region of 50% of all all carbon sequestration is happening because of these tiny little plants living out in in the oceans. And they bloom in areas where whales proliferate. So where you have more whales, you have more phytoplankton because of what's known as the, the whale pump. The whale's going deep down into the into, this, into the oceans, bringing up the nutrients, pooping it out, phytoplankton bloom and so on, soaking up the carbon. And a team led by a man called Ralph Shamming, a friend of both yours and mine, have calculated that the average whale contributes something in the region of $2.1 million worth of carbon sequestration services Every single week, across the course of his life, which is pretty more, astonishing. More. now Even the more, carbon
0: credits have gone way up in value. The whales are more like six or seven million.
1: All right, it was it was two point one million when when he wrote the paper, but uh, carbon yes. price tripled in that in that time, which of course it has. And that's not even to take into account the other things that that whales do directly impacting our economy, such as uh, ecotourism or um, like container ships crashing into them, costing an enormous amount of insurance, all of these different things. Whales have a direct impact on our economies in ways that we're not even realizing, as well as all the indirect stuff that they do as well in being part of a healthy and functioning ecosystem, which is what the planet needs. that, That for me is one of the most remarkable examples. The other thing that they've really looked into Uh, The other species they've really looked into is forest elephants in Central Africa. Forests with forest elephants in them sequester 7% more carbon than forests that don't have elephants in them because of the way elephants browse. they, they, They remove the smaller trees, allowing these really big trees to thrive and flourish without the competition of the smaller trees around them. And those big trees suck up so much more carbon than the small ones do, meaning that these forests are hoovering up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And when that paper was written, those elephants were worth $1.75 million across their lifetime. Presumably that's doubled or tripled now as a result of the price of carbon going up. But what that means for the communities that live near those elephants is that they, they should be paid for protecting elephants that are performing these services that all of us need. I've already, des- already described how rain from the Sahara lands here in Wales. That means we are connected. Oxygen from the Brazilian Amazon is ending up where you are in California, and you so you are breathing oxygen released by trees in the Amazon. Trees in central Africa. I am having my own benefit from those be, be that through the rain they produce or the oxygen they produce or whatever it is. So the people living around those the elephants living in these forests in central Africa should be paid to protect them, and the initial calculation was that each elephant um should be generating about $84 per day, and that should go to the communities that live near them. And that's gonna be an interesting shift economically. When we start paying people to keep nature alive, then suddenly people have got a few extra dollars in their back pocket because there's an elephant next door, as opposed to the other way around. And that's gonna make a big difference as well.
0: Yes, this all relates back to John Liu's view that, and he's another one of our EcoFlix uh, advisory members, uh, and. We have a swim lane on the channel called Restoring the Earth, the Great Work of Our Time. And he is a really a founding father, if you will, of this entire notion that we need to be focused on the actual value of the earth as opposed to its derivatives. Mm -hmm. The idea that we suck things out of the earth, consume them, and we leave the earth fallow. And we don't recognize that we're essentially robbing ourselves of the true value, because once we're done and we're getting close to being done with that, we can't rob the earth much more and not pay for the, for the loss. And so we really do need to start taking a look. And, you know, I was trying to figure out with the whales, for example, how do we deal with that? Unlike trees, for example, I'm trying to work on carbon credit program in Thailand protecting the elephants, which are forest elephants in Thailand, and also the trees. And that has great value, and we're working hard on developing an international program as opposed to the relatively poor-valued local Thai Thai credit program. Um, But the whales are interesting because they swim in international water. And it's not like you can control them by passing a law or that you can do anything about a ship that strikes a whale in international water. By comparison, for example, they could pass an ordinance if you're in Bolivia and you strike a whale and kill it, you owe us the carbon credit value of a whale. Well, that would get people thinking in a hurry. Now Lloyds of London is gonna put a rider on their policy. We're not paying for it if you kill whale. And next thing you know, they have to start carrying trackers to watch for the whales which is easy to do but it's not important to them now but i'm struggling because I don't know how to do that in international waters because nobody can really enforce that except international maritime laws but this is the kind of thinking i believe worldwide we need to really start valuing nature
1: and yeah uh, we need the legal frameworks to support that and you're, you're a lawyer you, you, you know this and for, for me one of the most important advances that's going to happen in the next few years in, in law is the creation and the implementation of laws around ecocide, so crimes against nature. We already have laws around homicide and genocide, these crimes against humanity. We don't yet have equivalents for cli- crimes against nature. And the point that people like myself have been making in the UK Parliament and various other places is that crimes against nature are crimes against humanity. If you, if you if you pollute the planet, yes, you are destroying an, an ecosystem, but you are also destroying humanity's ability to subsist off that part of the planet. And we have to equate the two. And I think in the long term, what this will require is some kind of international criminal court for nature, in the same way as we have the International Criminal Court in The Hague, that people can be tried uh, for crimes against humanity. We need to have an equivalent international jurisdiction for people that are committing crimes against nature in the same way. And I think it will happen. To begin with, what we'll see is, is national laws around ecocide. It looks like France are very close to passing national laws on ecocide. Belgium, potentially. Some other countries as well are quite advanced in this. But what we really need is it, for it to be adopted onto the Rome statute. Um, so to be brought into the, to, to the, the charter that covers crimes against humanity um by the UN and that would be enormous if we if that could happen then there's going to be a real game changer
0: it would be enormous and i mean i'm just thinking of all the impediments to that but going back to what you said earlier in the conversation if we can get a 10% of the countries moving hard in that direction maybe that's what it takes to start recognizing what we have to come to recognize which is we can't afford we can't afford to just it's not a matter of it's incredible and beautiful and wondrous and our kids should be able to see it which is of course all true we need nature it's not mm-hmm. just a place we can go in the afternoon and we don't feel like working it is what keeps us alive and i think that is the the lost piece of that message that you know maybe if countries were creating ecocide laws, it would be good. Enforceability is another whole thing, but
1: very difficult. But it's but we've got to start somewhere, and, and it should start with slamming some of these these damaging companies. and Then, long term, I think what we're going to see is is certain countries being ostracized in the same way as they are if their if their behavior is terrible in other ways. You've got North Korea is is cast out various other countries are are really struggling to engage on an international level because of their politics. That, I believe, will happen when it comes to people's engagement in the environment in the long term as well. So if Brazilian government, for example, if they continue, if if Bolsonaro wins uh, in in three weeks' time in in the, in the, the second round of the election, Brazil should suffer the consequences of having a planetary damaging administration by reduction in trade. The US should massively reduce the trade with Brazil as a result of those practices. And that's what needs to happen. We need in the same way as if with Russia invading Ukraine, companies and countries are refusing to trade with Russia. It should be the same if we're also doing things that damage the planet.
0: Yes, and and it's interesting because, you know, there are degrees of that. Um, And and Mm -hmm. there have to be warnings and there have to be sort of phase in periods And there are countries that are just dominated by foreign corporations. I mean, South America is just besieged with North American businesses that are rampaging. And there has to be a time period to kind of phase that in. And with what's been missing for so long is a world recognition of things and a world commitment to the same things we are all one we are the world and and we can sing about it but until people recognize that we're connected just like the air we breathe comes from the amazon and the pollution that we're feeling from japan when they have a fukushima all of these things are connected and if we don't find a way to act as an international body of people worried about the global well-being we're never going to fix this. We really do have to have an an international understanding. and with what's going on in Ukraine, it certainly does depress. It makes you feel like how can anybody not see that's wrong? And so you know it it's going to take more evolution, and we don't have enough time for that. So for the moment, we have to put value on the things that are important ourselves and buy products that are eco-friendly and and do the things that will help ourselves and the planet. And that's why I call on everybody I I know, I mean, just put yourself aside for a second and just think about the greater good. And if you can buy an electric car, great. But if you cannot throw plastic into the ocean and not, you know, you can separate your trash, recyclable, things like that are fundamental. You can do those things. Every little bit helps
1: it does help and it's simple to make those little things and they make your life cheaper if if you if you cycle more as opposed to driving everywhere you get fitter you feel better and you spend less on gas pretty simple equation if you eat slightly less meat you are less likely to die of a heart attack and you're saving money every single week as well as reducing the amount of deforestation as a result of beef farming in brazil etc etc all of these little changes make your life better as well as making the planet better. But then there's there's other changes that can be even more impactful. And, and that's where things like voting matters. Where do you put your vote? Where do you put your money? Where do you invest? If you've got, if you're lucky enough to have savings and, you're, and you can put them into a bank account, choose which type of bank accounts put those in. If you're putting it into a bank account that's propping up the fossil fuel industry, you are using your money to damage the planet. Whereas you can do the opposite. You can put it into green funds only. My mum's been investing in green the last 10 years they've been making fantastic returns in comparison to, to to uh to regular bank accounts far better than any of my other friends uh, in, in in investments by a mile voting i think is a massive one and i we yeah we can call out individuals we can call out individual policy uh, politicians we can call out individual parties but I, but i think this is where it comes down to personal responsibility the way you vote reflects what kind of planet you want to see and i think every time you're in the voting booth, just don't think about your position now. Think about what. how would you vote if you didn't know what position you were in? If you didn't know if you were wealthy or poor, how would you vote? If you didn't know if you were living next to a forest that was being chopped down, if you didn't know if you were living on the seafront, that's that risk of flooding, how would you vote if you didn't know your personal position? Um, think about that every time we're in the voting booth. Yes,
0: so much to think about, and I think this podcast hopefully will help people focus on some of the things that are really important. I really thank you for the time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Everyone,
1: i I'll McCann. Thanks, David. Great chatting to you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, Think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.